Hi, and welcome back to our first weekly episode of Seen and Unseen Aloud after the holiday compilations. It's good to have you with us. What do you make of Esther? By Michael Wenham. What do you make of Esther Ranson? Asked my brother. I knew what he was talking about, as no doubt all listeners of Radio 4's Today programme would have done. Clearly the advocates of assisted dying, or specifically suicide, have launched the next round of their campaign, even enlisting the late Diana Rigg, whose resemblance to my wife was once commented on by an old Welsh policeman, as a witness. Radio 4's Today programme devoted a great deal of airtime to the subject over a number of days. My reply to my brother was that I thought it was a good thing if we were more open about the subject of death and dying. After all, they are events everyone without exception will come in contact with at some point or another. So the sooner we stop treating it as a taboo subject, the better. However, the dangers of legalising assisted suicide are proved by places like Canada and Belgium. In January last year, I made a submission to the Parliamentary Health and Social Care Committee consultation on assisted dying or assisted suicide. Here's some of that submission. I am writing as an individual who was diagnosed with a rare form of motor neuron disease, MND, 22 years ago, and who has experienced the condition's relentless deterioration ever since. There are a number of my contemporaries who have survived that long. That and the witnessing of the ravages of the disease on friends in our local MNDA branch, plus an ethics qualification from Oxford, is the extent of my expertise. My first observation is how positively my contemporaries with short or longer prognoses with the disease seize hold of life. Clearly there are some who, like Rob Burrows, devote themselves to fundraising and creating awareness, while others enjoy the opportunities of life that come their way. What might have seemed a death sentence has proved a challenge to live. Secondly, I have recently discovered myself how expert professional care can enhance what is often portrayed as undignified dependence. Good caring can, in fact, add to quality of life. The sad thing, however, is that it is not something which the state will normally provide. Along with terminal palliative care, domestic social care must surely be a spending priority for any government that cares about the well-being of all its citizens. I'm fortunate to live in an area of excellent MND provision and good, though not abundant, palliative care. But I understand that this is not equally spread throughout the country. If it were, I suspect it would reduce the fear of dying, which must be a major motivator for assistance to ending one's life. Ironically, in MND, according to the Association's information sheet, How Will I Die?, those fears are greatly exaggerated. In reality, most people with MND have a peaceful death. The final stages of MND will usually involve gradual weakening of the breathing muscles and increasing sleepiness. 
This is usually the cause of death, either because of an infection or because the muscles stop working. Specialist palliative care supports quality of life through symptom control, practical help, medication to ease symptoms and emotional support for you and your family. When breathing becomes weaker, you may feel breathless and this can be distressing. However, your healthcare professionals can provide support to reduce anxiety. You can also receive medication to ease symptoms throughout the course of the disease, not just in the later stages. If you have any concerns about the way medication will affect you, ask the professionals who are supporting you for guidance. Further weakening of the muscles involved in breathing will cause tiredness and increasing sleepiness. Over a period of time, which can be hours, days or weeks, your breathing is likely to become shallower. This usually leads to reduced consciousness, so that death comes peacefully as breathing slowly reduces and eventually stops. So this is a third and subtle danger of legalising assisted dying or suicide. It would increase people's fear of the inevitable fact of death and dying. I think this could be one factor in explaining why, in jurisdictions which have introduced it, we see it being extended beyond the first strict limits. It is held out as an answer to this fearful fact, death. Whereas in fact, death and dying should be talked about in realistic terms as normal, as, as concisely outlined by Dr. Catherine Mannix. As she says, normally dying isn't as bad as we think. If the government should be doing anything, the first thing it might well do is to promote informed education about dying of the sort exemplified by specialists such as Dr Mannix, as well as adequately funding her former specialism of palliative care. It should start with school's curricula. After all, every child will have encountered death at some stage. Finally, the dangers of coercion, in my experience, are not so much external as internal. It's often rightly observed that prolonged pain is worse for the engaged spectator than for the sufferer. If you care for someone, seeing them struggling is barely tolerable. You may wish to see their struggle over, but underlying that wish is your own desire to be spared more of your own horror show. The person who is suffering, however, has that strong survival instinct common to all humans and is more concentrated on living than dying. Having said that, when you are depressed, as might be natural, that instinct gets temporarily eclipsed. Then you need protection from your own dark sky. It is at such times that your other inner demons emerge, your sense of being a burden to your family, to your friends, if you have any, to the NHS and to the state purse, your fear of losing your savings and of leaving nothing to your loved ones, your fear of pain and of dying exaggerated by popular mythology and your sense of suffering heightened by your depression. For most of us, with long incurable diseases... It's these internal perceptions that are most coercive, although they can be easily compounded or even exploited from outside. I don't see any way to protect us from such coercion, internal or external, 
except to demonstrate through legislation that every life, however tenuous, is equally important to our society and worth caring for. Any man's death diminishes me, and so we will value it to the end. I'm grateful that when I received my motor neuron disorder diagnosis, which was initially frightening, I couldn't be tempted to opt for an early death. Instead of one Christmas with my family, as I warned them, I've enjoyed 22 more Christmases. That was the law against suicide fulfilling its safeguarding function, protecting the vulnerable as I was then. Contrary to my preconceptions, my form of MND, PLS, is very gradual, and I've been able to live a full, if increasingly limited, life, thanks to my wife Jane, who cares for me 100%, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. My view is that legalising assisted dying or suicide has more cons than pros. The better choice is to invest in hospice and palliative care so that everyone may have access to pain and symptom care in the last years of their life. One Life's Relevance to Today by Krish Kandaya. There's an elderly man with thick-rimmed glasses sitting in the studio audience of a popular 1980s television programme. The camera lingers on him as the presenter on the stage, in her signature blue dress, opens up a scrapbook detailing a hitherto unknown mission at the beginning of the Second World War that rescued 639 Jewish children from the Nazi genocide. The man in the audience was the force behind this rescue mission. And the camera is focused on him because there's about to be one of the best television moments in history. Unbeknown to him, he is sitting next to a lady whose life he once saved. As Esther Ranson reveals the connection, a look of shock, wonder and amazement crosses his face. The story that was kept secret for nearly a lifetime was broken in front of a live television audience of millions. I've watched the recording a hundred times. It never fails to tear me up. I've spoken to people who were on the production team of that show who say that this programme was the highlight of their careers. It was a truly brilliant piece of television. Forty years later... And I am sat in the Royal Festival Hall next to another elderly gentleman. We've just watched Anthony Hopkins' incredible performance as Nicholas Winton, that man in the studio in the movie One Life. The director of the movie, James Hawes, makes his way to the front and asks if there is anyone in the audience who is alive today because of Nicholas Winton. The elderly gentleman beside me stands along with hundreds of others. Some of those standing were on the kinder transport in 1939. Others were their children, grandchildren and great-grandchildren. It was an immense privilege to spend some time with these survivors. Many had their original identity photographs with them. It was an emotional evening 
as I heard stories from those who remembered boarding the trains in Czechoslovakia in 1939 and saying goodbye to their parents for the last time. Many of the Kindertransport descendants had met Nicholas Winton personally before he died and were astounded by Hopkins' ability to capture his likeness and his story. I never met him myself, but as I watched One Life, I felt like I was in the room with him. The audience meets him as a young man discovering the terrible situation for Jews in Europe and deciding to take action. We journey through the many obstacles to the rescue mission. At first, nobody would take in the Jewish children because of the misconception that migrants would overwhelm local services at a difficult time for the country. Yet through savvy use of media, great administration and pure, unrelenting persistence, Winton and his mother, Helen Bonham Carter, were able to get a system running that meant hundreds of temporary foster parents not only came forward but paid for the privilege of helping to save the lives of these children. As many of the children lost their families to the horrors of the gas chambers and could not be reunited with their families, a large number were adopted by their foster carers and grew up in the UK. Some went on to greatness Others lived quiet lives of service. The 91-year-old man who sat next to me at the premiere had dedicated his life to the church and also to making sure the next generation didn't forget either the horrors of the Holocaust or the hospitality of ordinary people. One Life is a deeply inspirational film. As I reflected afterwards, I couldn't help but draw parallels with the situation in the world I live in now, with terrible wars that are in full swing. I wondered what Nicholas Winton would do for the children being slaughtered today. What would a modern equivalent of the Kindertransport look like? Who would step forward to inspire our nation once again to offer sanctuary, protection and hope to our world's most vulnerable children? Self-Belief, What Ted and Taylor Get Wrong, by Roger Bretherton. Psychotherapists can be really irritating. You may not have noticed how irritating they are, but I have. And that's saying something, because I am one, an irritating psychotherapist, that is. In nearly two decades of practising and training people to counsel, coach and generally therapise, I know that's not really a word, but I can't help irritating you by using it, I have curated an ever-growing list of the therapeutic practices by which I am most likely to be irritated. To my mind, the gold medal in the Irritating Therapist Olympics goes to a winsome and playful hypnotherapist called Stephen Gilligan. Some psychotherapists treat everything that comes out of their clients' mouths as treasures to be prized. It clearly wasn't the way Gilligan saw it. In fact, he developed a therapeutic strategy designed to confront any sense that it is possible to define ourselves simply. Every time a client made an I am statement, he would respond with a twinkling eye and a lilting voice. Of course you are insert dramatic Pinterest pause here, 
except when you're not. Consequently, the pantomime of therapy goes like this. You think you're a failure? Of course you are. Except when you're not. You think you're a coward? Of course you are. Except when you're not. You think you're a control freak? Of course you are. Except when you're not. You think you're always punctual? Of course you are. Except when you're not. You think you're disciplined? Of course you are. Except when you're not. You think you're accepting of everyone? Of course you are. Except when you're not. You think this is all really irritating? Of course it is. Except you've probably got the gist of it by now. But why would Gilligan, with all his charm and playfulness, risk infuriating his clients like this? Perhaps because he knows something important about human identity that most of us tend to forget. None of us can be summed up in a single sentence. And whenever we try, something grates against us. Any attempt to cram the complex fabric of our lives into the all-too-tiny suitcase of our self-definitions causes us pain. After all, that's what irritation is. It's the gnawing sense that something doesn't quite fit right. Psychologists note the difference between anger and irritation. When we are angry, we are usually angry at something. Someone or something has blocked our plans. We're frustrated. It's not right and we fight against it. There is a sense of indignation and injustice. But with irritation, we're not always sure what's bothering us. And if we are sure what it is, we're not sure it should bother us. It's the young couple whispering behind us in the cinema. The door that only closes with just the right pressure. The person who subtly insults us. Not quite enough to make us leap into action, but just enough to steal our attention. To be irritated is to be slightly annoyed that we are annoyed. To be annoyed while wondering whether we have any reason to be annoyed. Stephen Gilligan was confronting his clients with the fact that we often wear our identities like this, like ill-fitting clothes that bulge or chafe in the places where the tailoring fails to match the way our lives really are. We can be described in many ways, but we cannot ultimately be contained in, reduced to or summed up by any single concept. Some part of us always colours outside of the lines. The human equation always leaves a remainder. The idea that we are ultimately a glorious mystery, even to ourselves, is not a comfortable thing to live with. We would much rather come up with a bold, simple label and stick ourselves to it. At least then we're safe from uncertainty. At least then we'd be something. Most of us to some extent, play this game. And the good news is that our culture offers us numerous ways to play it. The bad news is that none of them really work. Perhaps the most popular way to play the identity game is to believe that we already are everything we need to be. We are whole and perfect, just as we are, and no one else can tell us otherwise. It is the gospel of self-belief that lingers on the lips of cultural icons from Taylor Swift to Ted Lasso. Believe in yourself. You think that would be a good thing to believe, but it does run into problems, particularly when the rest of the world fails to hold the same opinion 
of us. If we believe ourselves to be wonderful in every aspect, it comes as a bit of a shock to discover that not all our colleagues, bosses or friends regard us with the same breathless awe. At this point, many of us modify our view of ourselves to something more realistic. But if we are not prepared to do that, there are only a limited set of options by which to square the circle of knowing ourselves to be magnificent in a world that refuses to agree with us. We can attack the world in rage, we can flee from it in fear, we can hide from it in shame. A surprising number of people respond with paranoia, which makes sense. If almost everyone you speak to seems intent on undermining your matchless brilliance, you could be forgiven for thinking the world was out to get you. None of those responses are good. Thankfully, in recent years, therapeutic psychology has issued a corrective to the shortcomings of the self-esteem movement. More nuanced practices of self-acceptance and self-compassion recognise that it is part of being human to not always be as we would like to be. And we will certainly not always be treated as we think we should be treated. A simple grandiose belief in ourselves is too flimsy to endure the buffeting of real life. Self-belief is not enough. Some psychologists have argued that the 20th century should be named the century of the self, the historical period in which self replaced other larger concerns such as country or God as the ultimate reference point for good human living. The fact that so many of us unthinkingly endorse the need for self-belief suggests it is a popular option in our current cultural menu of ways to live with ourselves. But it is difficult not to conclude that the cultural currents in which we swim are somehow misaligned or that we suffer from a widespread lack of imagination if the linchpin of our aspirations doesn't really deliver makes me wonder if we've taken a wrong turn somewhere. The Christian view of all this is that we, as human beings, far from being selves to believe in, are the recipients of a radical kind of acceptance. We are not called upon to generate self-acceptance out of thin air. We have been divinely accepted at the deepest possible level, not because we're special or exceptional, but as a gift to us from a generous God. All we have to do is accept that acceptance, which is harder than it sounds because we'd rather believe we did it under our own steam. Accepting acceptance is a radical reorientation of the self because it doesn't start with us. It starts with a God who is willing to do whatever it takes to close the distance between us and him. If God wasn't like this, if he was vindictive or didn't care, or if he refused to come anywhere near us until we'd reached the required height of spiritual perfection, there would be absolutely nothing we could do about it. But as it stands, all our attempts to impress God are pretty much useless. There is little point frantically reeling in a God who is already closer to us than we are to ourselves. 
What's the point of trying to justify our existence if our existence has already been justified? This is where Christianity begins, not where it ends. Divine acceptance does something more. If self-belief asserts that we are what we are and no one can tell us any different, then divine acceptance takes us as we are, but refuses to leave us there. Something happens to us when we know that we are known and loved right to our bones. We no longer fear being abandoned because of our flaws, and we start to harbour a growing hope that we may be able to overcome them. Our self-awareness improves, we see ourselves more clearly. We learn to live life dynamically, with nothing left to prove, but a lot still to learn. Thanks for joining us at Seen and Unseen Aloud. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. Perhaps the themes or ideas might be interesting to someone you know. If so, don't forget to recommend us or share this episode. Together, let's explore the seen and unseen aloud.